Hello, dreamers, and welcome to the 262nd episode of California Dreaming. I have a few notes about the show before we get started. As you know, this is an independent podcast, which means the puppies and I depend on you to help keep the lights on and their treat jars full. And there are a couple of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your shows on. That helps give us more visibility so more people are able to discover the show. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can recommend us in true crime discussion and fan groups. And if you would like to help out just a little bit more, you can become a patron subscriber where your membership will unlock hours and hours of exclusive content. And that has always and will always start at just $1 a month. Or if you would like to make a one-time donation to the show, you can do so through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. And you can find links to everything that I've mentioned in the show notes. This week, I would like to thank Jane G, Diane S, Mike G, Doc H, Tina C, Summer H, Jelena S, Claire L, Lucy C, Ashley D, Aaron S, and Kim J for either joining Patreon, coming back, raising your pledge, going annual, or donating through PayPal. You all are the best. And while some of you do come and go, I do see that many of you do come back when you can. And your dedication to me is evident in the fact that over the years, through the pandemic, through the tough times, things have remained steady which is how I'm able to remain steady. Even though there have been times when my life always hasn't been, somehow we all managed to pull through, which is why I will always be here. All right, let's get on with today's episode. Our story today starts at the Mokalomne River. I hope I pronounced that right. I practice it a couple of times. It's 92 miles or 153 kilometers long and is located in Walnut Grove, California in San Joaquin County, a little more than a half hour or so northwest of Stockton. A fun fact about the river, in June of 2020, when we were all bored to tears in quarantine because of COVID, the river's watershed in Valley Springs, California they found five to 10 million year old fossils that were unearthed, including a gomphothere, I think that's how it's pronounced, which is an extinct elephant that had four tusks, a two tusk mastodon, a rhinoceros, a camel, a horse, a tortoise, and a tapir. A tapir, which I didn't know what that was exactly. It's still around. There are about three or 4,000 of them, but they're endangered. And they really haven't changed much in the millions of years that they've been around. It, what it looks like is kind of like some of you may already know, but it looks kind of like an anteater slash pig slash small elephant, yet it's closely related to the horse and the rhinoceros. It's a really odd looking animal. But anyway, they also managed to unearth a variety of other animals, including birds and fish. Like the rest of North America, the Mokalomne River Basin was originally inhabited by Native Americans until the earliest of the European quote-unquote explorers, mostly from Spain's military expeditions, 
started coming around the late 1700s into the early 1800s, and the first permanent European settlement was established along the river in 1830 in what is today Mokolomne Hill, which served as an outpost for French fur trappers. During the California Gold Rush, the river was a major gold producer, with the first gold being discovered there in 1848. However, 152 years later, a little something more sinister turned up in the waters of the Mokolomne. There would be a trio of individuals responsible for the gruesome and tragic events that we're going to talk about today. But one of them was their self-proclaimed prophet of God. This is the 262nd episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the second coming of Manson, Glenn Taylor Helzer. During the summer of 2000, as visitors at the Mokolomne came to relax along the river that wound through the canyon of the same name, it was lined with towering pine trees, and they were there to seek a reprieve from the August heat. However, the peace and tranquility of the area was disrupted when a duffel bag appeared. And then there was another, one after another after another. In all, there were nine. They came bounding to the surface of the river. They washed up along the shore. And according to an article about the story on TrueTV.com, on Monday, August 7th, 2000, that was when the first of the bags was noticed by a gentleman on a jet ski. It had washed up along the bank of the river. He was curious. And as nosy as I can be, I'm not that nosy. And I think all of us know better by now. Some of you listening might have the nerve to go poking around in random abandoned bags, luggage, totes, backpacks, trash bags, rucksacks, drums and barrels, but not me. No, thank you. But this jet skier, he rode over to where the bag was at. He got off his jet ski and opened it up. And what do you know? Inside was a human torso. Later that same day, an employee at a nearby marina found another bag, less than a mile away, bobbing around near a boat dock. I assume the employee fished the bag out of the water, and I don't know if he or she opened it, but whoever it was that did discovered a human head. A third duffel bag was discovered by a marine biologist, and it contained yet more human body parts. Eventually, all nine bags were found. Some of them had to be fished out by specialty dive teams. As it would turn out, the body parts were a mix and match of a total of three people, one elderly man, one elderly woman, and one young woman. The duffel bags and the body parts were transported to the Sacramento County Medical Examiner's Office, where it took the better part of one week for the coroner to separate out the various body parts in order to piece together which parts belonged to who. Eventually, the victims were identified as 85-year-old Ivan Steinman, his wife, 78-year-old Annette Steinman, and 22-year-old Selena Bishop. And Selena Bishop was someone completely unknown and unrelated to the Steinmans. But the three of them were very familiar with the person who made them this way. 
And these weren't his only victims. And he wasn't working alone. Four days before the duffel bags started washing ashore along the Mokalomne River, two people were found shot to death in a small apartment in neighboring Marin County in a tiny woodsy town called Woodacre. 45-year-old Jennifer Villarin and her longtime friend slash short-time boyfriend, 54-year-old James Gamble. While Jennifer and James were also unrelated to the two elderly people, Ivan and Annette, they were, in fact, connected to the other young victim that had been disarticulated and found along with them, Selena Bishop. Jennifer was her mother, and Selena's father is blues singer, songwriter, and guitarist, Elvin Bishop. The scene was confusing to investigators because the apartment that Jennifer and James were discovered in belonged to Selena, who was, oddly, nowhere to be found. So at the onset of the investigation, detectives weren't sure what to make of this. Where was the daughter? Was she another victim? Was she abducted? And what, if anything, did she potentially have to do with the shooting deaths of her mother and her mother's boyfriend? They really didn't know what to make of it because what was happening with those other bodies in the duffel bags was in a completely different county. So these cases were not going to be connected, at least not right away. Well, there was, of course, going to be more that happened that same day that the bodies of Jennifer and James were discovered in Selena's apartment. There turned out to be a report of a missing elderly couple made by their daughter, Nancy Hall. Nancy became concerned when she had not heard from her parents for a few days. When she went to their house, things were a mess. She could tell that something just wasn't right when she looked around. Later on that day, the Steinman's vehicle was found to have been abandoned. And as stated, more than a week later, the remains of the Steinmans would be identified as those that were found in those various duffel bags, along with the remains of that young woman who was a stranger to them. The investigation into these five murders would ultimately find them linked by a young man who had been raised in a seemingly normal, close-knit, and devoutly Mormon family in the sleepy town of Martinez, California, about an hour or so northeast of San Francisco. And all of these killings, all of it was said to have been done and carried out in the name of God. The town of Woodacre is a small community, and as small towns usually are, nobody is a stranger and gossip and news travels fast. Jennifer Villaran was a bartender at the town's social hotspot, the Paper Mill Creek Saloon, voted best dive bar in Marin County. And for Jennifer, even though it was work, it was also a lot like hanging out with good friends during her shifts. And those friends described Jennifer as a free spirit who worked hard and did what she needed to do to make ends meet. In addition to bartending, she did housekeeping, whatever odds and ends kinds of things that would come her way. Jennifer was described as sweet and kind, fun-loving, a tried-and-true friend, loyal to the death. She never forgot your birthday. She was exuberant, thoughtful, full of love and happiness. In 1976, Jennifer was in a relationship with and eventually married to 
blues singer and guitarist Elvin Bishop, who immortalized Jennifer in a song entitled, Fooled Around and Fell in Love. If you're in my Facebook discussion group, I posted a roundabout hint about this episode with a link to a music video of Rod Stewart's 2006 cover of this song. One of you mentioned the Elvin Bishop version being the original and that you like that one better. The song was covered again in 2019 by Miranda Lambert, but I thought if I posted both videos, it would be way too easy to figure out what this episode was going to be. The song is about when Elvin and Jennifer met and the fun that they had together. They had a typical lifestyle when you're in a rock band. And soon they were expecting their daughter, Selena, which is spelled S-E-L-I-N-A. The both of them absolutely adored her. When Selena turned five and was just about to go into kindergarten, that is when Jennifer decided to leave the rock and roll behind and she settled into a quiet, stable home with her daughter in Marin County so she could just focus on being a mom. Elvin Bishop opted to stay on the road and with their changing priorities and lifestyles, they eventually parted ways. Jennifer embraced single motherhood. She and Selena were extremely close and had a strong bond. And maybe there are some of you out there, your moms who raised single children and dads too, who can relate to this, myself included. I actually thought it was great. I loved giving my daughter all of my attention, her being my one and only. For me, I didn't particularly like being an only child myself but I didn't know any different. And from what my daughter tells me, she seems good with it. So one of Jennifer's best friends, coincidentally named Roseanne, said in an interview that Jenny and Selena were very, very close. They were best friends. And it was, for the most part, just the two of them. That is until Selena was about 22 years old. She decided to venture off into starting her own independent adult life. She got a job at a place called the Two Bird Cafe. I found it online. It's still around in San Geronimo in Marin County, just as the Paper Mill Saloon is still around as well. Selena was a waitress. She enjoyed her job very much, and it was enough for her to be able to support herself in the small studio apartment that she had in Woodacre. I'm just a couple of years older than Selena, and all of this is very relatable to my own experience. Right before I got pregnant in 1999, I was living in a small studio apartment in Belmont Shore, working as a barista. Back then, it was easy. Not as easy as it was for boomers, apparently, so they say, but it wasn't like today. Life is hard. It's hard to get out there and get on your own early on in life. But Selena became involved in her very first actual boyfriend-girlfriend relationship but I will talk a little bit more about that later on. So now that Selena was on her own, Jennifer also, in a way, started a new phase in her life, and she too began getting back into the dating scene. And one of the men who was interested in Jennifer was a friend that she had known for a while, and from what I understand, this guy kind of had a crush on her for quite some time, and his name was James Gamble. On the evening of August 2nd, 2000, James came to visit Jennifer at the Paper Mill Saloon, Paper Mill Creek Saloon, 
He brought her dinner, which Jennifer thought was very sweet. He stayed and hung out at the saloon for the rest of Jennifer's shift. She closed the place down at 11 p.m., locked it up, and left with James. By that time, the whole area was quiet, which would be typical on a weeknight. Jennifer and James went to her daughter Selena's apartment because Selena had asked her mom to house sit for her while she was gone for a few days. She had a trip to Yosemite planned with her new boyfriend, who she'd been seeing for about three months. So Jennifer and James would spend the night together over there at Selena's new little studio apartment. Just after five in the morning, a resident in the upstairs apartment was jolted awake by the sounds of multiple gunshots. At the time, there were less than 1,400 people living in Woodacre, so it would be very unusual to hear gunfire, especially from that close. That neighbor called 911 to report that he'd heard approximately six shots fired. When police arrived, they found two people who had been shot to death. The studio apartment where the victims was found was situated on a property behind a single-family house. So right away, it's obvious that someone would have to have been familiar with the layout of this property and to have knowledge that the studio was behind the main house because it was not visible from the street. These victims were identified as Jennifer and James. So when it comes to the location and the layout of the studio, from the sketches that I've seen of the crime scene, it appears that this small studio was built onto the back of a detached garage that was behind the main house. And there's a set of stairs on the right-hand side, so that is what I assume led to that upstairs apartment that would have been above it. It appears as though you could still fit at least one car into the space that's marked garage, and in there, there's a washer and dryer as well. Then when you go through the door that leads into the studio, right away to the left is the bed. And in this room, there's also a desk, a dresser, a TV stand, and a nightstand. There is also access to the backyard and to the stairs that I mentioned a moment ago. To the left is the kitchen, and then next to the kitchen is a door that leads into the bathroom. Police found the rear door of the studio apartment to be unlocked, and when they walked into the room and to the left, they found the bodies of Jennifer and James. Jennifer was on the bed, and James was on the ground next to the bed. They were both naked, and it appeared as though they were taken by surprise by whoever it was that came in and shot them, as there was high-velocity blood spatter on the bed and on the wall directly behind where their heads would have been resting on the pillows. Other than the two bodies, the blood evidence, and some shell casings, there wasn't all that much else in the way of useful evidence. Based on the types of shell casings that were recovered, investigators determined that the gun that was used was a 9mm semi-automatic handgun. The murders in and of themselves were shocking, but even more so since it had been more than 10 years since there had been a homicide in Marin County. And for it to be a double murder, like a lot of people say, these things just don't happen there. The news spread quickly, especially considering the fact that Jennifer's ex-husband was a well-known musician. And there's also the fact that Jennifer herself was a well-known and well-liked familiar face at the best dive bar in town. The whole community mourned. Jennifer was really someone who didn't have an enemy. And as the investigation moved forward, it would become evident that sadly, Jennifer and James were what you might describe as collateral damage. 
the one who had the enemy and didn't know it was Jennifer's daughter, Selena, the young woman who lived in that quaint little studio by herself, the one who was so proud of it, the one who was just beginning to spread her wings. In the beginning, the police weren't sure what to make of this. It kind of looked like perhaps someone may have seen them leaving the saloon after it closed. Maybe they were followed. Perhaps robbery was a motive for the crime. But then again, why not just rob Jennifer and James as they left the saloon? They didn't need to wait several hours after they had gone to bed. Investigators looked into both Jennifer and James's lives to see if there was anything that stood out, anything to indicate why either one of these individuals would have been targeted for such a brutal crime. Because bear in mind, dreamers, that the investigators have not made the connection yet to the duffel bags that were found, so they have no idea why Jennifer and James are dead. They had been friends for a long time, Jennifer and James, and he had been interested in having a romantic relationship with her for quite some time. James had had a successful career in software prior to retiring, and he retired kind of young to help care for his aging mother, which wasn't too long before he was killed. He traveled with his mom. He would take her to visit his children, her grandsons. By all accounts, James was a good man. He was gregarious and like Jennifer, outgoing, very fun, kind, and generous, with a great sense of humor. It was a tremendous loss for his family, his aging mother, and his own children. Jennifer and James were good people, who nobody had not one negative thing to say about either one of them. They were very much adored and much loved. Nobody could think of anyone who had a problem with either one of them, that would cause them to end up shot to death like that. The community was heartbroken over the senseless loss. And that left investigators with zero leads, zero suspects to look into, zero persons of interest to question. So they began to focus on the person to whom the apartment belonged, Selena. But the problem was, investigators were not having any luck tracking Selena down. As the search carried on, they were growing increasingly worried that Selena, too, might be in danger. They're very, very concerned and anxious to find her. Detectives did find out that she had a pager, but if you don't know what that is, then go ask your parents. They got the number, however, Selena was not responding to any of the pages and nobody had been able to get in touch with her. Not the police, not her friends, not her co-workers, no one. The next day on Thursday, August 3rd, 2000, Selena was declared a missing person, and flyers went out all over Marin and the surrounding counties. Selena's car, a 1984 Honda Accord, and its information was entered into the system so that if any law enforcement anywhere had any contact with her vehicle, it would come up as stolen and the detectives would immediately be alerted. Selena's aunt, Jennifer's sister Olga, made an emotional plea to the media for Selena's safe return. The whole situation was so confusing. Whenever there's a murder or multiple murders along with someone that's missing, 
The urgency is heightened because the fear is that person might be the one who did the murders, others might be in danger, or the missing person's life is in jeopardy as well. Everyone was desperate to find Selena with the hopes of finding her safe and figuring out what the heck was going on. In a thing I watched about this case on the Discovery Channel, someone said, young women don't go missing in Marin County. So I went to the Marin County Sheriff's website and sure enough, there's 12 missing persons listed and only one of them is a woman and that was back from November of 1999. So yeah, it's still holding true today. Women don't go missing in Marin County. In the meantime, 50 miles or 80 kilometers away over in the city of Concord, California, law enforcement over there had their hands full with a mystery of their own that was just as baffling and unusual as what was happening in Woodacre. 52-year-old Nancy Hall contacted police on the same day that Selena had been reported missing, which was Thursday, August 3, 2000, and she was reporting her parents, Ivan and Annette Steinman, missing as well. In speaking to the police officers, Nancy told them that it had been a few days since she had been able to get a hold of either one of her parents. So she had gone over to their house on the morning of August 3rd to check on them. When she walked up onto their front porch, she found that there were four newspapers piled up at the door. So for four days, nobody had come out to collect the paper. And you know that anyone who still gets the paper delivered, like my dad did until the day he died, it's the first thing that they do as soon as they put the coffee on. They go outside and they get their newspaper every single day. It's like the equivalent of checking our phones first thing in the morning. We don't not do it. My dad rarely let the paper sit out on the driveway past sunrise. And for the love of all things holy, if there ever was a morning that his paper was not there, he had the Orange County Register on speed dial looking for answers as to where his newspaper was at. Seeing as my dad was older than dirt and the Steinmans were both older than him, I assumed that they too were very much creatures of habit who loved their newspapers and would not have had them piling up like that. Nancy looked at the papers and found them to be dated from July 31st through August 3rd. Nancy knew that if her parents were going to travel or be on vacation or otherwise be away from the home for whatever reasons, they would have, one, told her, and two, suspended the delivery of the newspapers. As piled up papers used to be a telltale sign of somebody not being home for days. And back in the day, it would be making it a target for that house to be broken into before the days of cameras and ring doorbells and all that stuff that's become somewhat of a deterrent. So Nancy used her key to let herself into her parents' house to look for her mom and dad, but they were nowhere to be found. In addition to that, she found one of their pet cats was closed up in an upstairs bathroom and their other cat was locked outside with no access to food or water. Nancy continued to look around her parents' house to see if there was any indication of where they may have gone or what happened to them. Then on the sofa, kind of tucked between some cushions, Nancy found her father's wristwatch. He always had it on. And when she picked it up, she found that the band itself had been broken as if it had been forcibly removed from his wrist. That is when Nancy became alarmed 
and contacted the police. Nancy told the police that the last time she spoke to her parents was on Monday, July 31st. She called them that day to see how they were doing. And while Nancy was on the phone with her mom, Annette, she told her that, that they had company and that they couldn't talk. And Nancy could tell by the tone and the way that her mom was talking that she seemed like she was in a hurry. Impatient was how Nancy described her. And it wasn't like her mom to be that way, but, you know, she didn't think anything of it. Nancy let the police know that her parents were elderly. Her dad was 85 at the time and her mom was 78. And they were two months away from celebrating 55 years of marriage. They both retired from working for many decades for Chevron. They worked very hard to enjoy their retirement together. I have a picture of them that kind of reminds me of the dream that Carl and Ellie Fredrickson had from the Disney movie Up. They were going to travel to Paradise Falls, which is a fictional place in South America. Have any of you seen that movie? I watched it in theaters with my daughter back when it came out in 2009. Well, anyway, spoiler. Ellie Fredrickson ends up passing away before they ever get to fulfill their dream of going to Paradise Falls. So Carl was left behind holding on to his house in an area that's being overrun by developers. Frustrated, he ends up attaching a bunch of helium balloons to his home with the intentions of floating his way to Paradise Falls and he inadvertently brings along a stowaway wilderness explorer named Russell. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry about the sidetrack. I saw it with my daughter, and we both really enjoyed the movie. I still do. I watch it occasionally. Well, there's a picture that I'm going to share with you on social media of Ivan and Annette that reminds me of what it would have been like if Carl and Ellie had made it to their Paradise Falls. And all of that was to say is that this elderly couple were very much enjoying their retirement and each other. When Ivan and Annette Steinman were at home, they enjoyed tending to their garden. All the neighbors knew them. Everyone adored them. They were a very sweet couple, like everybody's grandma and grandpa. And like how I described my dad, the Steinmans were very routine and predictable. So for them to just be gone like this was alarming. And if they were going to go on a vacation, they certainly would have told Nancy, who was one of their two daughters that they had. But nobody had heard anything about any trips. Nobody heard anything about anything. The police immediately began searching for the missing couple. The media also became aware of the Steinmans having gone missing, and Nancy was also able to make an emotional plea for information regarding their whereabouts while police went door-to-door talking to neighbors, looking for any kind of clues as to what may have happened. They wanted to know if there was anyone out there who heard anything or saw anything, or who may have seen anything out of the ordinary or have any information about where they may have gone. One neighbor came forward who lived a few houses down on the same street as the Steinmans, and on the evening that they were last seen or heard from, she just happened to look out her living room window and she saw two men walking by. She thought they looked like missionaries with the LDS church. They had on suits, jackets, slacks, white dress shirts, ties. You know the look. But the thing was they both had long hair. I looked up the dress code and the requirements of missionaries, and oh yeah, it's restrictive. 
For men's hairstyles on latterdaysaintsmissionprep.com, it says, always maintain a conservative hairstyle. Keep your hair relatively short and evenly tapered on the top, back, and sides. Unacceptable hairstyles include faux hawks, crew cuts, mullets, and styles that are spiky, messy, or permed. So yeah, no mullets and no perms, guys. And just for good measure, I was curious, for women's hairstyles, it says, The style, color, and length of your hair should be attractive and easy to manage and should not draw attention. The color of your hair should be natural and conservative. So the fact that these guys had long hair was probably a good indicator that they weren't missionaries. Even though I did not know the whole dress code prior to looking it up just now, there are plenty of missionaries that I've seen walking and biking around and those young men always have short hair. If I would have seen long hairs, I would have immediately thought that these guys are not missionaries. But anyway, this neighbor saw these long hairs walking up to the Steinman's front porch and she observed them talking to them. She saw this all happening later in the evening, like sometime around 9 p.m. But at that point, the neighbor stopped looking out her window and didn't see or hear anything else. Nothing about these young men in suits talking to the Steinmans, at least to this neighbor, appeared alarming. And I'll give you a hint, it's because the Steinmans were familiar with who these men were. Back in Woodacre, investigators looking into the murders of Jennifer Villaran and James Gamble were searching for Jennifer's missing 22-year-old daughter, Selena Bishop, and they had started making some progress when they found out in talking to some of her friends and family that she had started dating a guy sometime back in May of 2000 or so, approximately three months earlier. But everybody that the police spoke to only knew him by his first name. Jordan. They met at a rave and Selena was very interested in him right away. He was handsome and very tall. He was about seven years older than her or so. She liked the fact that he was older and mature, much more so than the young men that she had known or dated previously. Selena told her mom about Jordan but as the weeks turned into months that these two were seeing each other, it started to bother Jennifer that Jordan didn't really want to meet her. So Jennifer came up with a plan. She and her best friend Roseanne came up with an idea to just randomly show up at Selena's apartment unannounced to see if they could catch her off guard and hopefully see him there. They went over there acting like Jennifer wanted to borrow a shirt from Selena. So Jennifer went inside while Roseanne waited outside by the car. And that is how Jennifer finally got to meet Selena's new love interest. When Jennifer came back to the car, Roseanne asked her what she thought. And all Jennifer had to say was, he's cute and he seems like a nice kid. She kind of shrugged. So kind of, eh, when it came to first impressions, I guess. Even though Selena wasn't anxious to introduce Jordan to her mom, she did talk about him a lot. And one of the things Selena divulged was that Jordan was having a lot of problems with his soon-to-be ex-wife, with whom he apparently was in the midst of a contentious divorce, and that he had asked Selena, with some help, 
with some financial stuff. You see, Jordan explained to Selena that a family member had recently passed away and was leaving him a substantial inheritance, $100,000, and he wanted to protect his inheritance from his ex-wife. So he asked Selena when he received the money if she would put it into her bank account, which she agreed to do. When investigators heard this, it was a big red flag. Jordan had only known Selena for three months, if that. He was weird about meeting her mom, and suddenly he wants her to put $100,000 of his own money into her account. Investigators definitely wanted to do more digging into this Jordan guy. So, through talking to a few people at Selena's place of work, the Two Bird Cafe, they found out that they had seen Jordan and that they knew that he lived with his brother, whose name was Justin, over in the East Bay area. But nobody had any idea where specifically Jordan lived, not even what city he was in in the East Bay. So investigators had their work cut out for them. The following day, Friday, August 4th, 2000, police caught a break when one of Selena's co-workers at the Two Birds Cafe found that Selena had inadvertently forgotten her pager when she clocked out of her last shift. This was a huge clue because those things have the ability to store some of the incoming pages up to a certain point. So in case you don't know and you haven't asked your parents yet, I mean, if you don't know, you don't know, but I'll try to fill you in a little bit. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, it was common for doctors and drug dealers to carry pagers. The pagers would have a phone number associated with it, and then you paid for the monthly service. And if you wanted to get a hold of somebody, you would have to call their pager, and then I think there was like a beep or a series of beeps, like beep, 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 and then you could enter your phone number, and then they could see who was trying to get in touch with them. It would pop up on their little screen. Then if they wanted to, they would call you back. Most of the time, people with pagers, they're busy, they're out and about, they think they're important, they got to find pay phones because nobody had cell phones. It was a hassle. On your little tiny pager screen, you could scroll through your history and maybe see the last 15 or 20 numbers that tried to page you, depending on the memory, I guess. But also, just like you can do with today's cell phones, you can access the history log of the pager so investigators will be able to see all the numbers that Selena received pages from. When detectives got a look at Selena's pager log, they started to see the phone numbers that she got pages from, and they looked into those numbers and none of them were attached to anybody named Jordan. However, they did find one number that paged Selena many, many times, and it turned out that that phone number belonged to someone named Justin, Justin Helzer. And remember, witnesses, friends, and co-workers said that Selena's boyfriend, Jordan, lived in the East Bay with his brother, Justin. And Justin lived in Concord, the same city as the Steinmans. So detectives started taking a closer look at Justin, his background, and his place of residence. They found that for a time, Justin, who was two years younger than his older brother, he was born in 1972, he had a brief stint in the Army National Guard. From there, Justin worked as a cable guy. He was a trusted and reliable employee. He never missed work and by all accounts was a decent guy and a hard worker. When investigators took a look at his criminal background, it was clean, but they did find that in June of 2000, he purchased a nine millimeter handgun. And June of 2000 would be just about two months before all of this mess started. 
And if you recall, I stated earlier that the bullet casings found at the scene of Jennifer and James's murder came from a 9mm gun. Could be a coincidence, but let's be real, it's probably not. So investigators with the Marin County Sheriff's who were working on Jennifer and James's case made a request of the Concord Police Department to conduct a surveillance on Justin Helzer's home to see who lived there, who was coming and going from the residence, etc., etc. They soon discovered that Justin lived there with a person named Glenn Taylor Helzer. He typically went by his middle name, Taylor, but I'm going to call him Glenn. And investigators found out that there was nobody residing at that address named Jordan. So investigators in Concord made a printout of the driver's license pictures of both Glenn and Justin's photos, and they went to Woodacre to see what they could find. When they showed their pictures to friends and co-workers of Selena's, they identified Glenn as Jordan. He had given Selena a fake name. When detectives dug into Glenn's background, they found out that he was a licensed stockbroker who went by G. Taylor Helzer. And from there, they were able to put together a little bit of background information about the Helzer brothers. Like I said, Justin was born in 1972, Glenn in 1970. They also had a younger sister named Heather, all of them born in Lansing, Michigan, to parents Jerry and Karma. They were devout members of the LDS Church. And at some point, the family moved to Concord, California, where Glenn graduated from Ignacio Valley High School. He served his Mormon mission in Brazil, and like his little brother Justin, Glenn was also in the Army National Guard for a short period of time. He married a woman named Anne in 1993, and they had two daughters before splitting up three years later. Glenn was a stockbroker for Morgan Stanley until he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in August of 1998, and from there, he began collecting Social Security disability benefits. Glenn was described as being a natural leader with a very charismatic personality. When he went on his mission to Brazil, it was easy for him to recruit people and to get them to convert and join the LDS church. Because of his outgoing and magnetic personality, Glenn was well-known and well-regarded within the church. So, you know, in looking at both of these guys, Justin and Glenn, they aren't exactly what you would think of when you think double murderers, yet here we are. Investigators can't ignore the fact that they were looking kind of circumstantially suspicious. And while the Marin County sheriffs are making some headway into their investigation into Jennifer and James's murders and in their search for Selena, authorities over in Concord finally got a break in their case looking for Ivan and Annette Steinman. On Sunday, August 6, three days after their daughter Nancy reported them missing, their vehicle, a white minivan, turned up in kind of a rough neighborhood in downtown Oakland, California, a 30-minute drive southwest of Concord. And not really a place that the Steinmans would go for any reason, much less stop and leave their vehicle. And another thing that seemed to be really out of character for the Steinmans was the fact that the van was parked with its windows down, blasting rap music. So when people find the vehicle... They ran the plates and found that it was in the system as being connected to missing persons. With the music blaring, they approached it cautiously with their guns drawn. However, when police got to the van, they searched it and it was empty. So it was a really weird way to find the van. 
having been left like that. The detectives had to call Nancy to tell her that they found her parents' vehicle, but there was still no sign of her parents. At that point, Nancy had pretty much lost hope that she was going to find her parents alive. The next day, on Monday, August 7, 2000, the Concord Police held a press conference asking for the public's assistance in finding the Steinmans. Well, that morning, it just so happened that a woman named Vicki Sexton was watching the report about the missing couple, and it turned out that she was acquainted with the Steinmans. She saw their pictures, and she was familiar with their white minivan. They were clients of hers at the bank that she was a manager at. She immediately contacted police because she had a very interesting story to share with them. Police met up with Vicki at her bank branch. Five days before Vicki saw that press conference, she was seated at her desk at work at the bank when she saw a woman come in in a wheelchair. And what stood out about this woman was how bizarrely that she was dressed. Not the fact that she was in a wheelchair, but what she was wearing. And remember, this was August. It's the hottest month of the year, right? This woman in this wheelchair, she's overweight. She's wearing this green knitted outfit. It's like a pants and sweater. And the pants are made out of the same material, knitted material as the sweater. So they're like sweater pants. I mean, it's so weird looking. I have a picture of the surveillance images taken of this woman in the bank, and I'll share that on social media when this episode comes out. It's this whole knitted sweater outfit, sweater top, sweater bottoms, and it's forecasted to be over 100 degrees or 38 degrees Celsius. But she's got flip-flops on and a weird gold cowboyish looking hat. She has black gloves on and she's rolling in on this wheelchair. The whole thing was strange and so conspicuous when you consider what I'm about to tell you next. So this woman wheeled herself up to Vicky's desk and asked to speak to the manager. Vicky was like, that's me. And this woman said that her name was Jackie and she handed over some checks that were written on the Steinman's investment accounts with Morgan Stanley and requested that the checks totaling $100,000 be deposited into Selena Bishop's checking account. Vicky right away is thinking that there was fraud written all over this transaction, so she started off by asking Jackie who Selena was to her. Jolly Green Jackie said that she was a friend of the family and that Selena was Ivan and Annette's granddaughter and that Selena was in need of open-heart surgery and that the Steinmans were willing to help her pay for it so they wrote these checks for her so that they could help finance the surgery. The Steinmans were very much capable of coming into the bank themselves, and Vicky knew this. She had worked with them in the past. This felt like something that they would have come in to handle on their own because they were so careful about their money. So Vicky put a hold on the transaction until she was able to verify that the checks had been written, signed, and authorized by the Steinmans. When Vicky saw the reports that the Steinmans were missing, she knew that the whole thing had to be connected to the strange woman in green and the $100,000. And it was a huge break for both of these cases as they finally made this link to these seemingly unrelated missing persons, Selena Bishop being missing, the Steinmans being missing, and Selena's mother and her mother's boyfriend being murdered. Authorities in Marin County 
and authorities in Concord realized that they needed to put their cases and their heads together to try and unravel whatever it was was going on here. They teamed up with the two things that they were hoping to do. One was to find Selena, and the other was to hopefully recover the Steinmans safe and sound, as they now feared them all to be kidnapping and extortion victims. And these were crimes that they believed were being carried out by brothers Glenn and Justin Helzer. A search warrant for Justin and Glenn's house was obtained in order to try and get a hold of the 9mm handgun that they found was registered to Justin, as they suspected that that was a weapon used in Jennifer and James's murders. They used a battering ram to break down the front door as they announced their presence, and in short order, they had Glenn, Justin, and someone who was described as Justin's girlfriend named Don Godman detained. But Don first linked up with Glenn. You see, Don is a heavyset girl and had been her whole life. At the time that all of this was happening, she was 26 years old. She was raised in a very rural area in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains area of California. Dawn didn't really have a stable upbringing, nor a steady place to live. She went from one place to another to another. Dawn was a very unhappy young woman, and for the better part of her childhood and adolescence, she had been. She had sunk into a deep depression, and there was at least one known attempt to take her own life. She did get married at 18. I'll tell you a little bit about that more later on. But things changed for the better for Dawn when a friend invited her to church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it was a thing that Dawn dove headfirst into. She was baptized and it completely turned her entire outlook on life around for the better. She'd even say that being LDS saved her life. Dawn met Glenn Helzer sometime in 1999. And you know, they're both LDS. Well, Glenn at least used to be. He had been excommunicated because of his illicit drug use. I mean, Mormons are prohibited from drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, even consuming caffeinated beverages. So yeah, illegal drugs are like a super no-no. But Glenn apparently still attended Mormon events, and he had met Don at one of their singles events. You see, one of the things that's important amongst the younger members of the Mormon church is to find a life partner to marry and to start a family, so I've heard. It's a necessary part of progressing through life, and you're supposed to stay married for eternity, which is essential to God's plan, something like that. I mean, lots of churches have single events, but I seem to hear about it a lot every time the LDS church comes up in any of our cases. And it feels like that there's tons of pressure to find someone to get married to before you reach a certain age. I'm sorry, I don't really know a whole lot about the constructs and philosophies of the Mormon religion. This is not a religious podcast, and I am by no means a theological scholar. I just know what Google will reveal to me. So, Glenn met Don at an LDS singles thing, and he was the one that went up to her, which was a thing Don really wasn't used to. Glenn Helzer was tall, I guess marginally good looking. He kind of reminds me of a young Scott Stapp before he 
jumped off a balcony and broke his face. Back in his younger days, during the arms wide open early days of the band Creed. So Glenn was the one who made the first move on Dawn. And you know, she was immediately taken by him. And you get the impression that whatever Glenn's angle was, he was definitely seeking out young, vulnerable, impressionable women. In short order, Glenn asked Dawn to come and live with him and his brother at their place in Concord, which she accepted. It's been reported that Glenn and Dawn had sex on at least one occasion, also very much against the tenets of the LDS church. But anyway, getting back to the search, Dawn would be the least of the interesting things that investigators would find inside the Helzer property. And it wasn't just interesting things that they were finding, there were somewhat disturbing things. They found links of rope, duct tape, a taser, leg irons. I mean, there are plenty of people who have rope in their garage or duct tape, perhaps, maybe even a taser. But leg irons? In all the crazy cases that we've had, I don't think we've ever seen leg irons anywhere except in court. So, They have all these implements that can be used to control people, to bind them, to prevent them from getting away, like if you're going to kidnap somebody, like what was suspected to have happened to Selena, Ivan, and Annette. However, the thing that gave investigators the chills was when they ran across some documents that had the names of Ivan and Annette Steinman on them inside the Helzer home. As investigators were processing the scene, and gathering up all of this incriminating stuff, Glenn somehow managed to run out of the house and down the street. And the guy had nothing on but boxers. He hopped some fences, he wove in and out of some people's backyards, and just like that, Glenn Hauser was in the wind. The police, the community, and the surrounding areas became very, very worried, very fast now that Glenn was somewhere on the run because this guy had become the prime suspect in this crime spree across at least two Northern California counties involving some missing persons and at least two murders. Eventually, Glenn made his way to the back door of a home and a woman was there at the time. And when she saw Glenn knocking at the door, she accidentally mistook him for a friend of her son's, so she opened it He ended up forcing his way in before she even had a chance to realize that she had made a terrible mistake. Glenn issued a threat telling this poor woman that he would kill her if she tried contacting police. He went into the kitchen and took a knife out of the butcher block in order to keep this woman compliant. He then told her that he needed some clothes and he needed some scissors, all of which she provided for him. He then got dressed, put on some shoes, and then he took the scissors and lopped off his long hair. I have a picture of that too, which I will post. So as soon as Glenn had this new look, he fled from this woman's home. Thankfully, he left her unharmed, at least physically. And from there, she was able to call police to report what happened. The police were horrified that they had let this guy slip away and that he had already taken another woman hostage. You're going to find that this woman was absolutely lucky that she made it out of the situation alive. Fortunately, as Glenn was running through the neighborhood, he rounded a corner and right into several police officers on foot with their guns pointed right at him. 
So they got Glenn back into custody relatively quickly. Thank goodness. So getting back to the Helzer house, the search of the place revealed even more sinister findings. There were stains consistent with faded, diluted, or blood that was possibly attempted to have been cleaned up. Much of the carpeting throughout the living room was wet, and there were fans set up to help the drying process. Crime scene investigators used luminol and alternative lighting to look for the places where blood may have once been, and they found plenty of it all throughout the home, but most of it was concentrated in the living room and in the bathroom. It was clear that something violent had taken place. Investigators also found a stash of drugs, including rohypnol, which is often used as a date rape drug. However, the one thing that they didn't find, the thing that they were hoping to find, was Justin Helzer's 9mm gun. It wasn't there. And because of all the blood evidence that was found inside the home, Investigators became afraid that they were not going to find Selena, Ivan, and Annette alive as they were hoping to. And unfortunately, they didn't have enough evidence to charge anyone with any of the murders yet because they didn't have a murder weapon and they didn't have three of the victims. So for the time being, they were only going to be able to charge Glenn with breaking into that other woman's home where he threatened her with a knife and robbed her and cut his hair and they were going to be able to levy some drug charges against Don and Justin, but that was as serious as it was going to get at that point. But it was serious enough to hold them in custody while they worked on the murders and missing people. In their dealings with Justin, Don, and Glenn, it was becoming clear to investigators who was in charge of this whole mess and who was just kind of going along. Justin and Don while they exercised their rights to remain silent and to not provide any statements to law enforcement, which was a very wise decision considering the circumstances, they were otherwise both relatively pleasant and cooperative once they were in custody. They definitely appeared to be the ones who acquiesced to Glenn. Whatever it was that was going on, Glenn was clearly the one running the show. So the same day as the press conference at the Concord Police were asking for help looking for the Steinmans. The same day that Vicki Sexton contacted police and told them about the strange wheelchair lady in green, and the same day that the search warrant had been executed at the Helzer home, that is also the day that that unwitting jet skier had the unfortunate luck of finding the first of nine duffel bags that would be fished out of the Mokalumne River. That would be the discovery that would solidly tie these two cases together and turn this case from a double murder into a quintuple murder. The Mokalumne River is located about 40 miles or 65 kilometers away from Concord. That curious jet skier became a regretful jet skier when he opened that bag and found a human torso inside. Authorities in that jurisdiction, which would have been the Sacramento Sheriff's Department, they knew that there was an active missing persons case out of Concord and contacted the detectives in charge of that case to inform them that they were having duffel bags of body parts floating up to the surface and washing ashore at the Mokalomne River. And it was obvious that there were body parts of different people. There was an older man, an older woman, and a much younger woman. So it didn't take long to connect the dots. The one thing that could have definitively linked the bodies to the cases out of Concord and Woodacre 
would have been the large tattoo that Selena was known to have had on her shoulder. But whomever it was that butchered up these bodies took the time to carve away that tattoo that had been on her back. And that missing chunk of skin, though, was enough for investigators looking for Selena to believe that she was the younger woman that was taken apart and stuffed into the duffel bags and thrown into the river. It took a total of about three days of searching to recover all nine duffel bags. All the while, the surrounding communities were just really unnerved at what was going on. I mean, it was like watching a horror movie, except this stuff was actually happening. Body parts of three people in nine duffel bags. In the past, I've talked about the act of dismembering people to cover up a crime. And I've wondered if that action comes from a place of desperation or depravity. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But when it comes to the leader of this whole mess, Glenn Hauser, it goes without saying, he is one sick and demented individual. The next day, Nancy was contacted and she was told that they needed to collect some DNA samples from her and her sister as they had to make a positive identification of the victims found in the duffel bags. They also collected DNA samples from Selena's family as well. In the meantime, the medical examiner was able to get a fingerprint from one of the parts found among the duffel bags, and it was positively identified as belonging to Ivan Steinman on August 9th, 2000. On August 11th, Annette Steinman was identified through familial DNA matches. Selena was the last one to be positively identified through DNA. Once the autopsies were completed, detectives were then able to put together a theory of what happened to Ivan Annette and Selena. It was believed that Glenn and Justin Hauser dressed up in suits. They carried some briefcases. They were looking like Mormon missionaries. They walked up to the Steinmans' home on the evening of July 31st, 2000. They theorized that the Steinmans were bound inside their home, which is when Ivan's wristwatch had broken off his wrist and fell between the cushions of his sofa. They were then placed inside their own minivan and driven over to the home where Glenn and Justin resided. The autopsies revealed that both of the Steinmans suffered stabbings and cutting wounds that were not lethal, an indication that both of them were tortured for as many as two, three, possibly four days in order to force them into signing over several checks totaling $100,000. Once they were able to get the Steinmans to write those checks, they were killed. Annette's throat was slashed and Ivan's head was bashed into the ground until he was dead. Selena's cause of death was determined to also be blunt force trauma to the head along with the throat slashing. DNA evidence found in the Helzer home linked the brothers to the murders of all three victims. Vicki Sexton, the bank branch manager, was able to positively identify Don Godman as Jackie, the woman in the wheelchair in the green sweater suit. However, what they weren't able to connect anyone to was the shooting deaths of Selena's mom, Jennifer Villarin, and her boyfriend, James Gamble. So the investigation into that carried on in an effort to try and make that definitive connection because they were sure that Glenn and Justin Helzer were responsible for their murders as well. In taking a look at the phone records at the Helzer home, detectives found a phone number that appeared repeatedly in the days and weeks leading up to the five killings. 
and that phone number belonged to a 30-year-old Concord woman named Deborah McClanahan. She was brought down to the police station and interviewed about what, if anything, she may have known about the Helzer brothers and what they'd been up to. It turned out that she was acquainted with Glenn. And oddly, she was not only Mormon, but also a practicing Wiccan. And she described herself as being a part of Glenn's quote-unquote inner circle. So you wouldn't think that it was possible to be a Wiccan Mormon, but apparently it's a thing with at least one person on this planet. But whatever Deborah was, the one thing that she definitely was, was a follower of Glenn's. During questioning, Deborah told investigators that just a couple of days earlier, Glenn, Justin, and Don had come by her place with a small safe and asked her if she could store it at her place. She did not ask what was in it, but she figured that it was drugs and that they were trying to hide it somewhere other than their own house. Well, it turned out to be a treasure trove of damning evidence. The safe contained Ivan and Annette's wallets with their credit cards and ID cards, along with several of their checkbooks. Selena Bishop's wallet and her ID card was in there as well. And most importantly, investigators found the 9mm handgun that they had been desperately looking for, along with boxes of ammunition. That was the thing that would link the Helsers to Jennifer and James's murders. So investigators finally had enough to charge Glenn Helser, Justin Helser, and Don Godman with five counts of murder, kidnapping, extortion, robbery, burglary, and false imprisonment. But they didn't quite have the whole story just yet. That would be a thing that Deborah McClanahan would open up to investigators about once she realized the gravity of the crimes that these three individuals were being charged with. She had more information for authorities about what was going on behind the scenes with Glenn in particular. Obviously, these crimes were being committed in order to extort money from the Steinmans. But things went much deeper than that in terms of what the money was going to be used for. And nobody ever expected to hear what they ended up being told by Deborah. So everybody in this so-called inner circle of Glenn's believed him to be a prophet of God. Yeah, these people who were responsible for this strange and horrifying crime spree in the summer of 2000 all came to believe that Glenn Helzer was brought to earth by God to carry out an important mission. And that mission was to hasten the second coming of Jesus Christ. Remember, Glenn was a very charming individual with an outgoing personality and that his younger brother, Justin, always looked up to him. Justin's personality was very much more subdued than Glenn's. He was painfully shy and introverted, though he was active in sports throughout high school and active with the church. However, one of Justin's main goals in life was to seek and win his older brother's approval. And Glenn, throughout their lives, pounded this idea into his little brother's head. Glenn was number one, and Justin was number two. After they graduated from high school, both Glenn and Justin completed their Mormon missions. Glenn went to Brazil, Justin went to Texas. When they both got back to California, Justin found work as a cable guy, and Glenn a stockbroker at Morgan Stanley. In 1993, Glenn married a woman that he had been dating named Anne, and they had two daughters. They separated in 1996. According to Anne, Glenn just one day decided that he was over being married, 
and he was over being Mormon. His ex-wife would later testify that Glenn wanted a life outside the LDS church, that the confines of the religion were starting to get to him, and he just wanted to have a normal life. So yeah, we can all see how well that went. Normal life outside the LDS church meant indulging in all of the forbidden things according to Glenn's ex-wife. Drinking, drugs, smoking, sex with women outside of marriage. Glenn grew his hair out and started wearing all black, and maybe he showered once or twice a week if that. Glenn was excommunicated from the LDS church in 1998 for these forbidden behaviors. After that, Glenn began developing his own ideas and philosophies about religion. And if anyone ever disagreed or challenged him about it, he would argue his points until the other person would just give up. One of the ideas that Glenn invented was the notion that good and evil do not exist, that society was stuck in this archaic and outdated system of standards, that things are either right or they're wrong, that they're either good or they're evil, and it was his idea that neither of those things existed. I mentioned earlier that Glenn left his job at Morgan Stanley and went on disability. He allegedly had some sort of nervous breakdown at work, which led to a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Over time, Glenn's religious beliefs became more arbitrary, erratic, and it centered all around himself. He was a self-proclaimed prophet of God, and he claimed to have direct communications with him. When it came to their accomplice, Don Godman, she was a lot like both of the Helzer brothers in that she had been pretty lost in life. She didn't have any friends in high school. At the age of 18, she hastily got married. She had a baby, but that baby died not too long after he was born. However, they had a second child that was also a boy. But within a couple of years, they divorced. And because Dawn was homeless and living in her car and also attempted to take her own life one time, her ex-husband was able to gain full custody of their son. At some point, Dawn moved in with a relative and managed to get a part-time job as a cashier at a supermarket. Desperate to find something in life to cling on to, and at the urging of an acquaintance, Dawn began going to services at a local LDS church. Becoming Mormon, according to Dawn, changed her life for the better and gave her direction and purpose. Dawn would end up meeting Glenn and Justin, ironically, at a murder mystery event that was being held at the temple on Memorial Day in 1999, but it was a murder mystery slash singles event. The Helzer brothers stood out in the crowd as they both dressed and looked much different than the rest of the Mormon men. They were both tall and good-looking, allegedly. They wore their hair long and they wore all black. Even though most reports identified Dawn as Justin's girlfriend, it was a well-known fact that she carried a torch for his older brother, Glenn. And as I said, it's believed that they had been intimate on at least one occasion. Dawn was a lot like Justin in that she would basically do whatever it was that Glenn wanted. They both wished to please him and always have his approval. At some point, Glenn told Dawn to participate in some sort of self-awareness group seminar. This involves spending four days in a windowless room while working on controlling their inner demons with the help of some sort of aggressively tough program facilitator. It had gotten so bad for some of the attendees 
that they ended up having to bail out of the program early, unable to withstand the relentless self-awareness exercises. Dawn, however, was cruising through the levels of the program to a point that Glenn told her that he would take over as her facilitator once she reached the final and toughest level. Glenn began peppering Dawn with all of his spiritual ideas, eventually getting her to believe that he was a prophet of God. Right after the turn of the new millennium, Glenn took Dawn to a Mormon temple in the city of Oakland and explained to her his plans to start his own self-help group whose ultimate goal would be to bring down Satan, and while they were at it, they would take down the Mormon church too. In order to overthrow the church, Glenn said he would do so by assassinating all the LDS leaders. During this visit to the Oakland Temple, Glenn told Don that it was time for her to know all of his plans, and they sat there for hours as he explained everything to her. And this is when Glenn divulged his plan on how to finance his Satan slash LDS takedown. He told Don that he was going to kidnap a former client of his when he was working as a stockbroker for Morgan Stanley. He would force them into giving him $100,000, and once he would get them to write the checks, he would murder them. Then he would use that $100,000 to start his self-help group. He asked Don that evening if she would join him. Would she be willing to, in the name of God, kill? Without hesitation, Don said yes. It would be an honor, she told him. Don would later testify in court that Glenn made her feel like she was the most important person in the world. Glenn also, one day, came up with a list of things he called his 12 Principles of Magic. They were going to be the focus of his self-help group that he planned on starting, and they were going to be his way of converting people into this belief system that he had just up and invented. So the 12 Principles of Magic were 1. I am already perfect and therefore can do no wrong. 2. There is no such thing as right and wrong. 3. I am all-powerful and therefore the creator of and accountable for everything that occurs in my life. 4. Life is always right. I embrace all of my results. Well, that sounds a little contradictory to number 2, where it says there is no such thing as right or wrong, but I digress. Number 5. All of my results I have created to learn from at some level. Number six, I know nothing, I believe nothing, I simply perceive without fear. Number seven, it is of no concern to me how accurate or inaccurate my perceptions are, and therefore I am always right. Again, contradictory. Number eight, unconditional fearless love is the most powerful force in the universe. Number nine, spirit knows. Number ten, I gain control by losing all control. Number 11. Life is such a precious gift. When I give back to life, immediately life goes back to me and therefore I am forever in debt. What goes around comes around. And number 12. There is a higher power than mine. That is my Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of my Father. And that is the biggest crock of poop that I've heard so far this week. And it's still early in the week, but even so, that's probably not going to change. Way to justify being an absolute menace to society with no accountability for anything, right? He made Justin and Don memorize these stupid 12 principles, which he just hastily wrote down on a piece of paper one day, just pulled these ideas out of his ass, 
and Glenn was going to call his self-help group Impact America. And he had planned to carry out a variety of crimes in order to help gather up the money to help finance his group, including one plan he called intimacy. A more accurate word for it would have been trafficking. Glenn, Justin, and Don went to raves and passed out flyers to women in order to recruit them into the sex trade industry. And the idea was to make money by selling sex and drugs to wealthy entrepreneurs and business people. Another idea that Glenn had involved trafficking underage girls from Brazil, have them seduce married men, and then turn around and blackmail them with threats of reporting them for child sexual abuse. Another plan that Glenn had come up with was a scheme to adopt some orphans from Brazil, train them to become assassins, and then have them murder the top leaders of the Mormon church in Utah to clear the way for Glenn to overthrow the whole institution. The plan that Glenn eventually settled on was what we discussed today, extorting his former clients, which ended up being the Steinmans. It was easy for Glenn to gain access to their home that night because they knew him and they trusted him when he and his brother came knocking on their door. And because they were elderly, they were easily controlled and ultimately easily killed. Having been a former stockbroker, Glenn had plenty of clients with lots of money and he had access to all of their information lots of people to choose from when he decided to whom he was going to do what he ultimately did. Selena Bishop was meant to be the one through whom Glenn intended to launder the money that he extorted, and the plan was to murder her all along from the very beginning. Why else would he have given her a fake name? Glenn's intentions from the start was to use Selena and then to do away with her. And sadly for Selena, being only 22 years old and just getting started into her own adult independent life, she was just perfectly ready to fall for the older, charming, handsome, and charismatic wannabe cult leader. When Glenn forced the Steinmans into writing those checks, they were made out to Selena Bishop. Once the money got deposited into her account, once it cleared and Glenn got his hands on it, then Selena was going to have to die because Glenn wasn't going to risk leaving anything to chance. I read in one article where it describes Selena as a co-conspirator. I do not believe she was a co-conspirator at all. I think she was completely in the dark about everything. Everything Glenn told her was a lie right down to his name. If she was truly a co-conspirator, then there would have been no need to lie to her much less kill her. The plan failed anyway. The bank put a hold on the deposits. They didn't get deposited into Selena's accounts and Glenn couldn't get his grubby hands on it. But he still felt the need to get rid of her just to make sure she would never have the chance to inform on him. Glenn Helzer was Selena's first real boyfriend, so she thought. She had stars in her eyes when she met him at that rave three months before the killings. He was a little bit older, mature, tall. I keep saying they're tall. He's six foot five or 1.96 meters tall. And like I said, marginally handsome. It makes me like want to throw up a little bit in my mouth when I say that. But he had a nice, charming smile and he was intelligent, blah, blah, blah. 
Selena was telling everybody about Glenn, especially those that she worked with at the Two Bird Cafe. As their relationship progressed, Selena's friends grew somewhat uneasy about him because even though Selena was getting serious about Glenn, he wouldn't divulge what his last name was and he wouldn't give her his phone number. He wouldn't tell her where he lived and he wouldn't let her take pictures with him. He didn't want to meet any of her friends, but there were times when he did make an appearance or two at the Two Bird Cafe. He certainly didn't want to meet Selena's mom or any of her other extended family, which led to at least one of her aunts to think that that seemed pretty shady. It made sense when Selena went missing and turned up murdered and dismembered that that was Glenn's purpose from the start. He was the one who talked her into moving out of her mother's house and into that small rental studio. He even had a key to the place. That way he would have Selena isolated from her mom in order to carry out his plan. He was going to use her to cash those checks and then dispatch her. That's how evil and sinister this guy was. He charmed her and romanced her, knowing all along that he intended to murder her. Towards the end of her life, Selena was becoming a little bit fed up with the way Glenn was always so secretive, and he was moody. One minute, he would be loving and caring, and in a split second, he would be cold and detached. Selena was pressuring him to finalize his divorce from his wife because she really wanted their relationship to progress. All the while, Glenn's objective was to extort the Simons, have Selena put the money through her account, and then get rid of them all. The investigation revealed that in the weeks prior to the kidnappings, extortion, and murders, Glenn had purchased a reciprocating saw at Sears. That was the saw that was used to cut everybody up, and it was recovered when the house was searched. Justin and Glenn also adopted a couple of large dogs from a local shelter with the intentions of feeding the remains of their victims to their dogs. And I'll go ahead and tell you now that that did not happen. Unlike their evil, despicable owners, these were good doggies and they didn't do it. So they went and purchased the nine duffel bags from a local Kmart. According to the court documents related to this case, when it came to the Steinmans, as a stockbroker with Morgan Stanley, over time, Glenn had cultivated a close relationship with the elderly couple over the years that they were his clients, to the extent that he had been invited over to their home to visit and had once gone on a family vacation to the river along with their daughter, Nancy. Nancy would testify that she believed Glenn was a good friend to her parents. She got the impression it was one of those situations where he was like the son they never had. On the evening that Glenn and Justin went knocking on the Steinman's door, the investigation revealed that they actually had a list of five potential former clients that could have been victims. Glenn and Justin were going to start at the top of their list until somebody invited them in. As it turned out, the Steinmans were number two on their list. The first potential victim wasn't home when the brothers came knocking on their door that Sunday evening. So they moved on to the second couple that they had on their list, and that would be Ivan and Annette. Justin and Glenn wore suits and had briefcases with them. They knocked on the front door while Don Godman waited for them in a vehicle parked nearby. Earlier in the day, Glenn and Justin had purchased leg shackles, apparently at an adult store. They then bound their victims, placed them in their own minivan, and drove them back to their house. 
The next day, the manager at the Concord branch of Morgan Stanley received a call from a woman who said that she was Annette Steinman and that she wanted to liquidate her investment accounts. The manager described the person on the phone as sounding tense and nervous, and even though it was not typical for clients with portfolios such as the Steinmans to make such a request, they went ahead and followed through with it. From there, it is believed that the Steinmans were ordered or forced to ingest their Mohypnol and were made to write two checks out to Selena Bishop, one for $33,000 and the other for $67,000. Because of Don Godman, who testified in exchange for a deal that would see the death penalty taken off the table, we know what happened to Ivan and Annette next. Glenn thought that because he gave them a large dose of the Rohypnol, that the Steinmans would overdose and die. And while they did pass out, they never did stop breathing. So Glenn and Justin took the elderly couple into the bathroom one at a time, and as Don looked on, they slit Annette's throat using a hunting knife, and then they smashed Ivan's head against the tile floor until he passed away. Don stood there in disbelief at what was happening, and just prayed that they would die quickly so it could be over with. The next morning, Glenn and Justin dismembered the bodies, but Glenn ordered Justin to do most of it, because according to Glenn, he had more important things to do, like meditate and listen to the spirit. After Justin was finished, the three of them got down on their knees next to the Steinman's dismembered remains and thanked them for being willing to sacrifice their lives for the cause. And then they stuffed the Steinman's remains in the duffel bags, along with some stepping stones from the yard, in order to weigh them down, because they were going to throw them into the river. The following day, that was the morning that Don rolled into the bank in that wheelchair wearing that green knitted sweater bodysuit and a gold cowboy hat. She could not look more conspicuous. She rolled up to the bank manager and said she wanted to deposit two checks into Selena's account. With a made-up story that Selena needed open-heart surgery and that her grandparents were giving her the money to help pay for the procedure. She identified herself as a friend of the family and that she was doing them a huge favor by depositing that money. Vicky said that the checks were placed on a hold and I was under the impression that the whole scheme quickly fell apart and the Helzer brothers, along with Don Godman, were in custody before they had a chance to get their hands on the money. But investigators did say that the checks did get cashed, however they did not provide details as to who cashed them or when it happened. But there were reports from some alleged sources closest to the case who opined that Selena did cash the checks through her account but ended up having regrets and threatened to go to the police, prompting them to murder her too. So how did Selena wind up dismembered and intermingled with the Steinmans in those nine duffel bags? Well, Selena was invited on one last final date with the man that she knew as Jordan on August 2nd, 2000. They went to a popular bar called the Bison Brewing Company in Berkeley that was about halfway between where she and Glenn lived. A bartender said that the couple had met there frequently during that summer, and they blended in amongst the locals as well as the college students who stayed in town through the summer. Glenn was late that evening, as usual, so Selena had asked the bartender for a change so she could make a call from the payphone. The bartender would later testify that Selena was exasperated and said that she wasn't even sure why she was dating this guy before walking out the door to use the payphone outside. 
Before long, Glenn arrived and they sat down together at a table near the window. They sat close to each other as they whispered their conversation to one another. The bartender brought them a couple of beers and would testify later that he thought that they were a cute couple, but didn't think their personalities meshed. Glenn was always quiet, spaced out and distant, while Selena was always friendly, smiling, with a very bubbly personality. It was obvious to the bartender that Selena was way more into Glenn than Glenn was into her. On that night, the bartender said that Selena was in a really good mood because she and Glenn were planning on driving up to Yosemite National Park to go camping. So it would have been the first time that they did something like that together as a couple. For Selena, it was going to be fun and romantic and a chance for them to spend some quiet time alone, a chance for them to get closer, and possibly she would be able to learn more about Glenn. After they finished their beers, the bartender saw Selena take Glenn by the hand and together they walked out of the bar for the final time. A neighbor who lived near the home Justin and Glenn rented named Kay Shaman testified that the day after Glenn and Selena's date at the Bison Brewing Company, she saw Selena's vehicle, an older Honda Accord, drive up to the Helzer house and she saw Glenn and a woman with long dark hair get out of the vehicle. The couple shared a kiss before he brought her inside. It would be the first and the last and only time Selena would ever be at Glenn's place of residence. It would be Don Godman who provided the details of what took place next. Shortly after they went inside the house, Glenn offered to give Selena a back massage. In the living room, Selena laid face down on the carpet, probably really thrilled that he was actually offering her a back rub. As Glenn massaged her, Justin came into the room quietly with a hammer in his hand. They had on some music, so she was not aware that he had entered the room. You can imagine what Selena's state of mind was. She'd been waiting for Glenn, or Jordan as she knew him, to finally open up and start doing sweet romantic things with her and for her. So here she was getting a nice back rub with the intentions of heading up to Yosemite for a few days of camping. We can imagine that she was really excited and never crossing her mind that Glenn was capable of doing what he had already done and was about to do. Like with the Steinmans, we can only hope that it went quickly. As Selena lay there, innocently getting what she thought was a loving back rub from her boyfriend, with whom she was thinking that they were turning a new corner in their relationship, Justin brought that hammer down over and over into Selena's head smashing in her skull, beating her with it until he thought she was dead. Glenn then brought Selena's body into the bathroom where the Steinmans had met their end, but soon realized that Selena was alive. Don Godman looked on as Glenn pulled Selena's battered head back by her hair. Don was looking at Selena in the eyes when Glenn said to her, Spirit says you get to know this isn't a dream. At which point, he slit Selena's throat with the same knife he used to finish off Annette Steinman, bringing their total number of murders to three. Dawn confirmed in her testimony that the plan was for Selena Bishop to die from the start. 
All Glenn wanted from her was to use her bank account to deposit the Steinman's money into. But after killing Selena, there was still yet another problem to contend with, and that would be Selena's mother, Jennifer. All along, Selena wanted to introduce her new boyfriend to her mom, but Glenn, a.k.a. Jordan, didn't want to meet Jennifer. Now we know why. He didn't want anyone knowing who he was or what he looked like because his plan was to murder Selena. He needed to maintain his anonymity as much as possible, but Selena was too excited about him. Once Glenn killed her and he got to thinking about what he was going to do next, he realized that her mom would start becoming concerned about where she was at. There was that one time when Jennifer was fed up with not having been introduced to her daughter's new love interest, so she randomly showed up at her apartment under the guise of needing to borrow a blouse. Selena invited her in, and that was the one and only time Jennifer saw Glenn. Glenn knew that Selena's mom would be able to identify him as the boyfriend. But it was more than just that. Selena told her mom everything, including the fact that they were supposedly going to go camping in Yosemite. And when she told her mom that she was taking that trip for a few days, she asked her if she would house sit while she was gone. Glenn knew that Jennifer would be expecting Selena to come back from that trip in one piece, literally, right? Well, Glenn literally did exactly not that. And because of that, Glenn decided that Selena had to die too. On August 4, 2000, just before sunrise, neighbors near the studio apartment behind that single-family home in the tiny community of Woodacre were startled awake by the sound of gunfire. As she had promised her daughter, Jennifer had shown up at her apartment after her shift ended at the Paper Mill Creek Saloon. Unfortunately, that romantic gesture of James's bringing her that dinner and joining her for the evening at Selena's place would end up costing him dearly. Just as tragic as Selena's end had come, how she had been anticipating spending some quality time with someone she thought that she was having a budding romance with, Jennifer and James, who had been longtime friends, were growing close as well. They enjoyed a really nice night and... They went to bed together in Selena's apartment. Remember, Selena moved out of her mother's house and into this apartment at Glenn's suggestion, likely telling Jennifer so that they could have some privacy, but the truth was he didn't want to have to come around Jennifer's mom because Selena was to die within months of knowing him. Dreamers, we have had lots of boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, and partners kill each other across the more than 300 episodes of this show that we've had, both here and on Patreon. But I think this is one of the first times, if not the only time, that we've had a killer begin a romantic and intimate relationship with someone with the intentions of murdering her at some point in the not-too-distant future. I have no words for what a monster this man is. Because they got this apartment together, Glenn had a key to it. Knowing Jennifer would be there house-sitting, he went over there before dawn, figuring that he'd catch her asleep and completely off guard. He knew exactly where everything was. He had been there many times. He had spent many nights there. He helped Selena move in and assemble her furniture. 
I don't know if Glenn managed to completely surprise Jennifer and James as they lay there, or if they ever heard him coming at all. But I do know that Glenn was taken by surprise when he found James was there too. But even if they did hear anything, the two of them basically had no time to react as both of them were shot in the head as they lay in bed. Whatever it was James managed to do, he ended up on the floor next to the bed. So, he didn't get far. A neighbor who rented an attached upstairs apartment named James Soliday was jolted awake by the sounds of the gunfire, and then just seconds later, he heard the sounds of footsteps at a running pace, and then he heard the sound of a car racing away from the area. James Soliday came down the stairs and through the door of the apartment below him, where he found Jennifer and James. Neither one of them were moving, and both of them were covered in blood. He called 911. The following day, August 4, 2000, is when Nancy Hall called to report her parents, the Steinmans, missing after being unable to get a hold of them for several days and finding those newspapers piled up on their porch. Later on that same day, Selena, who was scheduled to be back at work, failed to show up for her shift, so her co-workers became concerned as well. She would end up being reported missing when it was realized that nobody was able to find her after getting word that her mother had been murdered in her apartment. A neighbor of the Helzer brothers would later testify at trial that on that same day, August 4th, when she got home from work, she apparently was very close by when she saw the brothers pulling out of their driveway in their truck. They were towing two jet skis and had a bunch of duffel bags in the bed of the truck. A truck similar to Justin's was captured on surveillance going over a bridge that crossed the San Joaquin River. The truck had a trailer attached to it with two jet skis on it. Two days after this, on August 6th, that's when the Steinman's minivan was found abandoned in that neighborhood in Oakland. Remember, it was found with its windows down and the rap music playing loudly. In the back of the van, investigators found a chainsaw and a sawhorse. Fingerprints were lifted and they came back as a match to Justin and Don. Also on that day, a professional carpet cleaner was hired to clean a large stain in the living room of the Helzer brothers' home. The carpet cleaners testified that as they worked on getting that large red stain out of the carpet, Justin and Don sat in the dining room having lunch, watching them as they cleaned. Justin told the carpet cleaners that he didn't know what the stain was. One of the carpet cleaners suggested that perhaps it was Kool-Aid. Justin said, oh yeah, we spelled Kool-Aid. I mean, seriously, my daughter's dad was a carpet cleaner and there were some times when I would go with him on some of his jobs and I think I've mentioned this in a past episode, but there was this one time we were called to this really beautiful sprawling home in Anaheim Hills and the gentleman who lived there led us to the master bedroom and they had some really nice dark tan Berber carpeting and at the foot of the bed in this room was a blood stain. The rest of the carpet was spotless and the gentleman explained to us that his wife had attempted suicide by slitting her wrist. I was like, dang, it was really strange being in that home afterwards. But the one thing that I'm fairly certain of is that there's no mistaking blood for Kool-Aid. The only Kool-Aid that would have been in this story was the Kool-Aid Glenn Helzer was serving up with all of his religious baloney and that these two, Justin and Don, were drinking. 
In the end, Glenn, Justin, and Don were all charged with a total of 18 felonies, including kidnapping, extortion, and five counts of murder. Don Godman cut a deal and agreed to testify against the Helzer brothers in exchange for a 38-year sentence. Today, Don is 49 years old and is currently housed at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. She's going to be up for parole in just about eight months in January of 2024. Glenn Helzer, in a surprising move, ended up entering a guilty plea in 2004. His little brother, Justin, pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, but a jury convicted him in March of 2004 on 11 counts, including kidnapping, extortion, and murder. His attorney argued that Justin had suffered from mental illness and was nothing more than someone who was ordered around by a dominant narcissistic older brother. An expert testified on his behalf, stating that Justin really did believe that his brother was a prophet of God and was unable to understand that the murders he was helping to commit was morally wrong. This argument fell on deaf ears as the jury unanimously convicted him. As they went into the penalty phase, Justin made an outburst in the courtroom, stating that he just wanted this to be over with, that he just wanted to die. This caused his mother to burst into tears, prompting the jury to be removed from the courtroom for a period of time. Justin offered his apologies to the judge and explained that he was just being truthful. He wasn't trying to be rude. He either wanted freedom or he wanted death. Four years to the day that the two final victims of this murder spree were killed, that would have been Jennifer and James, on August 4, 2004, Justin was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for his role in their murders. And for the murders of Selena, Ivan, and Annette, Justin was sentenced to die. Three months later, on December 15, 2004, Justin's older brother, Glenn, was also handed down a death sentence. As the family left the courtroom, Selena's aunt, Jennifer's sister, told reporters, Glenn Taylor Helzer is the second coming of Manson, not Christ. Today, Glenn is 52 years old, and he is condemned and would normally be at San Quentin's death row, he has a mugshot from there, I think from sometime around 2007-ish. But on the California Inmate Search website, it says that he's currently being housed at the R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. Not sure why, but it's not like California is busy executing anyone anyway. Sometime in 2010, Justin attempted suicide by ramming some pens into his eyeballs. He survived, but the injuries left him blind in both eyes and with some brain damage. On April 14, 2013, Justin committed suicide by hanging while incarcerated on death row at San Quentin. An unfinished letter was found in Selena's apartment that was discovered by investigators when searching the little studio that she was so proud of. Selena had been writing this letter to a longtime friend in the days prior to her death. In part, she wrote, I have everything I need right here. I don't know when I've ever been happier 
in my life. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams.